in Jerusalem riding on a donkey, having people wave branches at him and shout Hosanna to him. To us, maybe we've seen it in isolation, and so we don't understand how it fits with what's come before in Mark's story and with, with what's coming after. What we also may miss, in part because Mark doesn't explicitly say it, is that his coming isn't random. The fact that he's riding on a colt was not just because he thought it would be an effective means of saving his energy for what comes later. He, he actually chooses this method specifically because he knows about a prophecy in Zechariah 9. True to form, Mark doesn't put those, those details out front. Mark's Messiah is one who comes secretly, who comes sort of cloaked in a veil of normalcy. That holds true in the way he enters Jerusalem. We tend to focus on the fact that these people are shouting for him and waving branches and putting out their cloaks for him to walk over. And it seems very kingly. And that's the way we usually observe it. A week before Easter, we observe that his, his triumphal entry. And we sometimes don't consider the fact that five days later he's being killed. So there's something about this that isn't actually supposed to talk about people. to indicate that people were welcoming him and receiving him. In fact, the things that they were saying to him were just what you'd say to a pilgrim, particularly a famous one who happened to come into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a site of religious significance that people would come to from all over, and and they would come to worship. And people who were outside seeing them come, especially if they were famous like Jesus was by this point, they would greet them with this traditional greeting from the Psalms. They would say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David. That's all they were doing. What they didn't realize is that even in their words that they probably had shouted at any number of other people who'd come in to the city, their words were already being realized, in fact, with Jesus coming. They were praying and celebrating the thought that the one who had been promised who would reign on David's throne would actually come, and Jesus here comes in as a king. What they didn't realize is that Jesus was coming here in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and in fulfillment of all the promises that David's kingdom would last forever. Jesus' arrival fulfills prophecies about the Messiah. There's more to it, this little story, that sets the stage for what's coming. And even more important than the way that he comes in and the fact that it identifies him yet again as the Messiah is the fact that he ends his, his journey at the temple. Verse 11, verse 12, rather, or verse, yeah, verse 11 points us to him coming into Jerusalem, going straight to the temple, looking around, sort of assessing the situation, and leaving for the night. Mark doesn't do much yet with what, why the temple matters, but it's, it's extremely important. What will become clear down the road is that Jesus as Messiah, the work that he came to do as Messiah, has everything to do with the temple and what it stood for, with fulfilling what the temple was supposed to point to, with purging what the temple had become. Look, just glance with me ahead. Verses 15 through 19 in chapter 11 are about the temple. Jesus cleansing it from impurity. Chapter 12, or actually really beginning in verse 27 of chapter 11, going through chapter 12, he's doing, he's having all of these exchanges with the religious authorities. That's all taking place in the temple. Chapter 13, he promises the destruction of the temple, referring to his own body and that he would rebuild it again in three days. Then in chapter 15, one of the, one of the details about his death is that the, the veil that separated people from the interior of the temple gets torn at his death. The temple comes back again and again as the site and a theme for what Jesus had come to do as Messiah. We're going to see a lot more clearly as we move forward in the story why the temple mattered so much. But briefly, the temple mattered because it was the place that people came to meet with God. It was the site set up, ordained by God himself, 
for acceptable communication between sinful humans and a perfectly holy God. It was the place and the only place where you could meet with God directly. The temple was the reason Jerusalem mattered. It was the centerpiece of the people of Israel's identity, especially as, as an occupied country with all of these this foreign power telling them what they can and can't do. The temple was what gave them uniqueness, distinctiveness as a, as a people within that larger empire. Jesus' work as Messiah was going to address all these purposes of the temple directly. His work is about security and identity. It's about kingdom. It's about meeting with God directly in the flesh and restoring all that the kingdom was supposed to be. That's where we're headed. That's why Jesus ends his little journey at the temple. But before restoring things, Jesus first had to purge what was impure in temple practice. That's why the confrontations that are coming here in chapter 11, also in chapter 12 and 13, occur at the temple. Jesus had come to purge. He may have only looked around on that first night, but he saw all he needed to see, and he came back to address the problems. Verses 12 and following show us something about what Jesus came to do as Messiah. Let me step back before diving into his account of the cleansing of the temple and set up a little context. Because before we get to him in the temple, we have him on the way to Jerusalem running up against this fig tree. It's one of the strangest stories in the Gospels. And at least on the surface, it, it doesn't seem to reflect well on Jesus and his character. On the surface, it's caused many people to think less of him, to accuse him or accuse Mark of actually making this up. Jesus and his disciples are on the way back to town, right? They had gone in, they'd looked around at the temple that night, then they went out to Bethany, and now they're on their way back. Along the way, Jesus gets hungry. He sees a fig tree. It's got leaves on it, so he thinks it'll have fruit. He goes over. It has no fruit. When he sees that, he curses it. At the other side of this, uh, 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 skipping ahead over the, the account of the, the conflict in the temple, we see that his cursing actually made it wither all the way to the root. He curses a fig tree because it didn't have what he wanted on it. And Mark goes to the trouble of pointing out the fact that it wasn't even the season for figs, right? Mark wants you to realize this was weird. This was not the kind of activity that you would expect Jesus to participate in. And people have wondered why in the world he would do this. They've accused Jesus of just of an outburst of anger, that he had self-control problems, that he was so frustrated this tree didn't give him what he wanted that he just cursed it on the spot. They've criticized him of showing off that he was just sort of randomly using his power just because he could? I suppose today you might say that Jesus wasn't environmentally friendly. What was this about? It seemed so out of character for him. It seemed so random. I think it's better understood as what is known as an enacted parable. We've seen parables in Jesus' teaching already. We've seen that he uses analogies from familiar images to describe ideas. We saw him do that with uh, the sower and the seeds back in chapter 4. He used, he used it for, uh, as an analogy of the types of soils that are in human hearts and the, the, as an explanation for why they respond differently to his message. In this case, he's not teaching verbally with a parable, but his actions, the, the things that he does, represent something that's about to happen. 
There's a, there's a tradition for this in the prophets in the Old Testament. In, in Jeremiah chapter 19, for instance, God tells Jeremiah to take this flask, this, this clay flask, and to break it as a symbol of the judgment that's coming. In Ezekiel chapter 4, Ezekiel is supposed to take a brick and sort of make a mock city of Jerusalem as, uh, to, to set up the siege that was going to come, to represent it. He enacts a parable. I think that's what's going on here. And one of the reasons is that we get a reoccurrence of our old friend, the Markin sandwich. If you've, been, if you've been walking through this study of Mark with us for a while, you've, we've come across several of these so far. Mark has a very unique storytelling technique. You don't see it in a lot of other Gospels. Mark will take a story, begin to tell it, then insert another full story right into the middle, and then finish the first story that he started. One of the reasons he does that is just as a good building up sort of drama of the story. He leaves you hanging for a while until next week. He tells you another story in the middle, and then he concludes it. But another reason is that it's always true that these two stories help understand each other, help interpret each other. He puts them together in this distinctive way as a clue to his readers that what he has to say in, in each story is intimately connected. And in this case, the fig tree story is interrupted by the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, a symbol of his judgment on Israel for their fruitlessness. I think the way to understand this parable is not just a random act of Jesus' power, zapping something because he could, but as Jesus trying to, trying to show his disciples through example what he had to do with the old system of piety. And think, in other words... The fig tree story helps us understand the temple cleansing story and why it's so important. Just One New Testament scholar puts it this way. Just as the leaves of the tree concealed the fact that there was no fruit to enjoy, so the magnificence of the temple and its ceremony conceals the fact that Israel has not brought forth the fruit of righteousness demanded by God. That's the point of the fig, fig leaf story, fig tree story, and that's the point of the cleansing of the temple. So if we want to know what it's all about, what we really need to do is look deeply at this story of Jesus encountering these, these marketeers in the temple. What did Jesus encounter when he entered it? So they, they, they're on their way back from Bethany, encounter this fig tree, he curses it, now they enter Jerusalem and he, he goes straight back to the temple. Remember he had looked, he scoped it out the night before, now he knows what he's up against, and so he goes straight back there and comes in and directly confronts the people who are there. Now here's something about Here's something like what this would have looked like. Anybody ever been to somewhere in the two-thirds world where they have marketplaces, somewhere like India or, or maybe even Mexico or, or somewhere in Central Asia or North Africa? There are these teeming marketplaces, often called bazaars in, in, in Asia, where you've just got a mass of humanity and animals and products for sale. It's, a, it's an incredible sensory experience with all of these weird smells and sounds, and, and it's just stuff is happening. When you go into one of these bazaars, people are, people are screaming at each other and bartering with each other, and it, it, it's chaos. This probably looks something like that. So the temples were surrounded by walls. The temple uh, th- that was built in this period, Herod's temple, had exterior walls that you would walk into, and there would be a big court, probably paved with stone. And then there was an interior wall that separated the interior portions of the temple. The Holy of Holies was back in there, only the places where only certain kinds of people were qualified to enter. That exterior court, we walk into the main walls, into this big, huge court where you could congregate, that was called the Court of the Gentiles. 
That was the place that those who were not Jewish were called to come and worship God. They were not permitted to enter the interior portions of the temple, but they could, they could pray there. Apparently, in the decades bef- just before Jesus came to earth, this portion of the temple had been made into this marketplace where you've got all kinds of animals being sold, bought and sold. You've got money being changed, and it's just a sea of, of exchange. Now, these markets were absolutely necessary. You had to have markets for the temple to work. You had to make sacrifices, right? That was required. And it was far easier to buy something to sacrifice on site than it would have been to transport it from home. You don't want to bring your cow with you from home if you're, if you're traveling from across Israel all the way to Jerusalem. There's a lot of walking involved. You don't want to do that. So you buy what you need on site. The other thing was that when you came to the temple, you were required to pay something called a temple tax. It's similar to just tithing. But to do that... There was a specific kind of money that was required. Exodus chapter 30 required a, spe- a specific kind of shekel that you would use to pay your temple tax. Well, those things didn't exist anymore. They were in occupied territory, and almost everybody used Roman money. And one of the biggest problems with Roman money is that these coins had huge pictures of the emperor on them. This amounted to idolatry in the minds of, of the Israelites who were to have no, make no graven image, right? So they come to the temple to pay the temple tax. They can't use Roman money. They had to exchange it for the closest thing that existed to the old shekel of the sanctuary. It was a coin that came out of Tyre. So there were money changers swapping it out, and there were lots of animals being bought and sold. And this place was a huge marketplace. Jesus enters and sees it with his own eyes that the temple has been turned into a filthy place full of wheeling and dealing merchants and their customers. And he shows a side that we hadn't seen so far. To those who looked at him, it probably looked like he'd snapped, like some sort of switch had come on and he transformed. Jesus turns into this almost violent figure, turning over tables. Other, other accounts in the Gospels have him driving people out with a whip. We're told he wouldn't allow anyone to even carry anything through the temple. So the question is, what exactly was the problem that Jesus was purging here? He clearly and instinctively, immediately took it seriously, whatever it was. What was it that was so offensive about this marketplace that had been set up inside the temple? The fig tree example and this confrontation in the temple show us a judgment on the religious status quo that comes with Jesus' kingdom. What is it that's being judged? Jesus' words are the key here to answer that question. His words are few, but they're very revealing. Jesus cites Scripture. Look to verse 17. Jesus says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. This is the judgment. This is the statement that summarizes the judgment that we've got to unpack. And it's got two components to it. It's got a vertical component and a horizontal component. A vertical component... God and humans, and a horizontal component, dealing with humans and their interactions with each other. All the law, everything in the Old Testament, Jesus tells us is summarized in two main commandments. To love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love others as you love yourself. The whole law is summarized in a vertical requirement and a horizontal requirement. And it seems that the temple practices here show that they were failing on both of those counts. Here's what I mean. Jesus ties his protest to the purpose of the temple as the house of prayer, 
That's what the temple is supposed to be, and apparently that's what it had failed to be. It was supposed to, supposed to be a place of meeting with God, an expression of dependence on Him, of a, a life-orienting love for Him that would bring you from the far corners of Israel to this one place to meet with God. But the insensitivity of setting up shop inside the temple shows that it was nothing more than posturing. There had been mar- there had always been marketplaces near the temple, but the traditional place for these was outside, on the way up to Jerusalem, on the, the foothills of the Mount of Olives. That's where the markets, most of the markets were and had traditionally been. Now, for convenience sake, markets had been set up inside the temple. And it seems that the problem, in Jesus' eyes, is that this shows an insensitivity to the significance of, of prayer. What it shows is that you're just going through the motions, that you want to make things as convenient as possible for yourself. There are still sacrifices going on. People are still obeying the letter of the law here. But that was never what God intended. Throughout all the Old Testament, through the prophets and the Psalms, God says repeatedly that what he desires is not just sacrifice, but a heart that responds to him in love. Hosea 6, verse 6, summarizes this point. It comes up again and again that this is one example. God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The whole point of the system itself was about relationship with God, about restoring something that had been broken by sin. It was never about uh, it was it was never to be wrote, to be done for its own sake. But that's what it had become. It was designed as a symbol of a relationship of love and trust and obedience and dependence. Sacrifices that acknowledged imperfection but never as a replacement for that fellowship and relationship. Now the way the market was going down inside the temple, it showed that their religion was empty, that it had become thoughtless, that it was man-centered. The house of prayer had been made into a place of exchange with God. I'll do what you ask for, you give me what I want in, in exchange. Probably not all that different from the exchanges going on in this marketplace. They came to do what was asked of them, to make the sacrifices, but they wanted to do it as conveniently as possible and get out of there. It was a transaction between them and God and no more. I think that's what's at root of Jesus' protest to what's going on in the temple. That's the vertical problem that Jesus came to purge. This horizontal element goes hand in hand with this defect in the vertical element. Jesus calls these guys a bunch of robbers. He tells them essentially that that, that he had, they'd made this house of prayer into a place where people come to get ripped off. And he doesn't say exactly what it is that they were doing that qualified as, as robbery. Maybe it's that they were, they were ripping them off on the exchange rate. I don't know, maybe this was kind of like the airport, like the worst place in the world to change money because they got you over a barrel and you need it right then and there. Maybe that's what it was. The convenience was driving up the rate of exchange. Who, it doesn't say. But they were ripping people off. And it makes sense. The point of the law is to induce wholehearted love for God that brings a satisfaction in Him that's so complete and a dependence on Him that's so complete that it removes all need to put other people down in order to advance yourself. If God gives you everything you need, you don't have to use others to get ahead. You're secure. You're satisfied. But when God is not the source of security and rest, but God has become another source of self-advancement, another way to get ahead, another place where you come to make transactions that help you out, help your bottom line. If God has become just another way to put yourself out front, then it makes sense that you would turn to others in the same way. The house of prayer had become a den of robbers, 
And this one little exchange stands in as an indictment of the entire religious status quo that Jesus came to purge. So, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. The king is here, just like he was promised. And we know right out of the gate that one thing he's come to do is change the way people relate to God. He's come to purge what's impure. But thankfully, he didn't come merely to purge. He's also come to bring healing as well as judgment. He's come to restore. Verses 22 through 25 help us understand this. Remember, he's come as the king on David's throne, the one who was promised, who would come and establish a kingdom of peace and harmony, a a kingdom in which the relationships with God and with each other would be like they were intended when God created the world. Now, I'll be honest. The first 15 times or so that I read through this text... Jesus' sayings on prayer in verses 22 through 25 seemed like add-ons, like they had been tacked on almost to the story about the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. And I think to some extent there is a change of emphasis. Focus shifts here. But there's actually also a close connection. What I think is that in in these statements about prayer, Jesus is calling for a restoration of the very things that were lacking in the temple. If what he just called out in the temple was its lack of prayer, in other words, a lack of dependence on God, and its, its abuse of other people, if it had stopped being a house of prayer and turned into a den of robbers. And it seems like what he says in verses 22 through 25 is encouraging just what was lacking, a new dependence on God through prayer and love for others that symbolize best in willingness to forgive them. I think these statements give us the kingdom as it's supposed to be. Relationships with God and other humans that are fixed. So, the first part of Jesus, and the bulk of what Jesus has to say, focuses on prayer. That's where we want to start. What does Jesus have to say about prayer? He's just exposed deep flaws in the way that people were relating to God. Now he's shifted towards instructing his disciples on how they should relate to God. He uses the fact that the fig tree withered up after he cursed it as, as an inspiration to shift his focus. There it had been about judgment. Now the disciples are amazed that he could just speak to this tree and it, and it would be withered up. And so now he turns to the power of faith, the power of specifically prayer. His words are really, really strong. So strong we have to be careful with them. Look at how he responds when Peter is amazed at the fig tree incident. Jesus says to him, verse 22, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Look at verse 24. This is about as strong a statement as you can make it. I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, this is some strong language, and that's what Jesus meant it to be. Jesus used this kind of language for emphasis. Now, this is one of the main passages that, that a school of thought in American Christianity claims to support itself. It's a school of thought that says if you just have enough faith, you can ask for whatever you want and you know it's going to be given to you. Sometimes it's, it's derided as sort of name it, claim it, or prosperity gospel, that the good news that Jesus brought is that you can have what you want as long as you believe enough. On the surface, that's what this text looks like it supports. But you've got to read these words in light of the kind of speech they are and in light of the the larger context. It's not that simple. 
The kind of speech that Jesus is using here is one we call hyperbole. Hyperbole. It's just a, it's, it's a way of speaking that puts things in, a, in an incredibly strong manner that isn't quite literally true for emphasis, for the sake of emphasis. So if you're, if you're fighting with your spouse and you say you always do something or you never do something, right? you're, you're, you're making a blanket statement that if probed deeply, you'll discover is not true, right? But you're using hyperbole for the sake of argument, for emphasis. That's what Jesus is doing here. If you try to push his language too literally, you miss the point of how he was using this language. That was never his point. It also doesn't fit, to, to see this as a sort of name it, claim it passage, it doesn't fit with the larger context in Mark. Think back just a couple chapters earlier in chapter 8. Jesus is interacting with his father who wants to have his son healed, and the father doesn't really know if Jesus can do it. He says, if you can, please heal my son. Jesus tells him, I can if you'll only believe. And his prayer is, I believe, help my unbelief. It's an admission that his belief isn't total, isn't complete. There's actually quite a bit of unbelief still mixed in there. But that's the kind of faith that Jesus honors. He then heals the man's son, showing that this is what faith actually looks like. It's not perfect confidence. It's not the absence of all doubt. It's a trust or decision to rely on Jesus. If that passage is true, we can't take Jesus' words here too literally because that, that father never would have passed this test. I think the point is simply that God honors faith in him and that that's why prayer matters so much. Prayer offered in faith is powerful. That's Jesus' point. So why does Jesus focus here on prayer? Here and also in his criticism of the temple. Why is prayer the key? Why does he emphasize that asking for things is the key to receiving what you want? Why does God choose to honor this particular method? Why does this, what it looks like, to be in a right relationship with God in the kingdom? Why should we pray if God is in control anyway, can do what he wants, and probably will do what he wants? Why should we ask anything? Why should we not just roll with the punches? I think the answer, the reason prayer is central, the reason prayer is how Jesus is right here defining what the kingdom relationship with God looks like, is that prayer is an expression of weakness. It is an expression of trust and dependence. It acknowledges that we can't do for ourselves, but that God is able and worthy. It glorifies him, in other words, in the same way that you glorify a chair by sitting on it. If you truly want to glorify that chair, treat it as an object worthy of trust and act by sitting down, right? That's, that's to treat that chair as if it is what it claims to be. What's glorifying to God is when we turn to him as the source of everything that we need, a source of dependence and security. Prayer is what it looks like, in other words, for God to be our God and for we to be his people. Prayer is... It's what it looks like for that goal of the Bible's story since the fall to be realized. It's what the restored kingdom looks like. A relationship of dependence. God's people on, on him. So that's the vertical that Jesus came to restore. The same kind of dependence on God that was to be true of Adam and Eve in the garden when they were created. That you were given everything that they need and they communed with God daily in this place of harmony and peace. They needed nothing. Everything was provided them. It was complete dependence. That's what we're going back to. Complete dependence without fear. That's what Jesus calls for here. 
But he addresses the horizontal dimension too. We don't want to spend too much time here because we've, we've actually spent the past two or three weeks a lot of time explaining how what Jesus does for us as our Savior in his death on the cross sets the template for how we treat each other, that those two things always go hand in hand. And Jesus goes back there here. He says, if you're praying, in verse 25, when you're praying, forgive others if you have anything against them. Because this forgiveness of others is what it looks like for someone to have been forgiven by God. Here, the order, the normal order that we see these things is reversed a little bit. Normally we say, because God has, been, has forgiven you, therefore you should forgive others. Here it's, it seems like he's saying, forgive and God will forgive you. I think we've got lots of other examples in the New Testament where it's made clear that it's important God first forgives us. That we don't, we don't love first, we love in response to God's love for us. I think the reason Jesus reverses the order here and can do that without contradicting what we see in other places in the New Testament is just that those two things always go hand in hand, that you don't get one without the other. If you have truly experienced God's forgiveness of you, you will always be willing to forgive others. It will be perfect. You're going to fail and sin, but your trajectory, what you're building towards, is greater forgiveness of other people. It's a, it's a circle that continues to go around. You forgive because you're forgiven. And your forgiveness of others shows you've been forgiven. Because you've been forgiven, you forgive others. And your forgiveness of others shows you've been forgiven. It's a circle. And this is what it looks like for healed relationships in the kingdom to exist. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a love for others that even triumphs over their wrong against us. Love is tested at the place where it is wronged, where the loved and the lover are at odds. And the kingdom that Jesus came to restore... Our forgiveness in Jesus is so complete. Our trust and dependence on God is so absolute that we don't need to hold anything over others to be satisfied, to be secure. We are freed up to treat others with the kind of grace that we have been shown. That's the key to the gospel, and that's the, that's the key to the horizontal relationships in the, in the kingdom. So with the remaining minutes I've got, since we've spent so much time lately, in the past few weeks, on this horizontal dimension, I want to spend time talking about practical aspects of this vertical thing Jesus is talking about. So though in the kingdom he came to restore, prayer is supposed to be central. It's what it looks like for you to relate to God daily in this new kingdom. And yet, prayer seems to be so hard for us to be consistent with. At least it's, it certainly is for me, and I, I know from talking to many of you that you struggle in the same ways that I do. We're called to prayer as a way of life. Here, the juxtaposition between the fig tree and the temple gets cursed. And what Jesus is coming to do is about prayerlessness. Fruitlessness is a, is a result of prayerlessness. Fig tree gets cursed because it has no fruit. The temple gets cleansed because it has no fruit. And prayer is the reason. Fruitfulness, healthy kingdom relationships look like prayer. It's why we make prayer such a major portion of our services. It's why we're careful how we pray. We plan them out carefully. It's why our small groups exist to focus on prayer. It's why our covenant that we sign with each other as members of the church includes promises to pray for each other regularly. Because we know that the key to our being a healthy and fruitful community is dependent upon our prayer life. But it's also one of the things that's easiest to let go of. We emphasize it because we know as a church that those who are most guilty of the sin that's condemned in this passage, the sin of the temple, those who are most guilty are probably not the obvious ones. When you, when you hear about people using religion to get ahead and rip others off, 
first thing that I think about is TV preachers who are, who are ripping off the elderly and the poor, promising them you know, health, wealth, and freedom if they'll just send in a check. It's too easy, though, to pick on those guys. That's the low-hanging fruit. I think those who are more often guilty of the sin that's condemned here are churches that, over time, trade a real relationship with God for a routine, for almost punching the clock in hopes of receiving some sort of benefit, where you, you run programs and productions that start out well, meaning, and maybe serving a healthy purpose, but over time become almost like sacred cows that you have to keep running and that take the place of an actual emphasis on God and our dependence on Him. We emphasize prayer because we know we could be that kind of church. But where I really want to focus today is on the individual lifestyle of prayer and why it, why it comes so hard. Because to be a church of prayer that doesn't end up fruitless, it's going to depend on individuals who have vibrant daily lifestyles of prayer. Why is that so hard? I'm going to give you just a couple of reasons from my own experience why I think it's so hard and how we can fight back. I think the root cause that prayer comes so difficult for us is unbelief. We don't pray because we don't believe it's going to work. We may not always admit that to ourselves, but when we talk all the time about, oh, I need to pray, I need to pray, I need to pray, like I have, but you, you consistently fail to do that regularly, your actions show what you really think about prayer. If you thought that it was going to work, you would do it. Maybe, maybe we are self-conscious in our unbelief. Maybe we do admit that we don't pray because we don't think it's going to work because we emphasize times when we prayed for something and it hasn't come. It looks like the prayer hasn't been answered. And so we don't think prayer is going to work. Other times, it's probably, probably more often the case, we minimize times when God has answered prayer because we explain that away as coming from some other source, some sort of natural circumstantial thing. When things happen to us that, we, that we're happy about, that's when we, we don't look to God as the author of that good thing. We, just, we see it as part of the natural course of things. Unbelief could come in from, from any of these sources. But the bottom line is that if you're frustrated today by your lack of fruit, in your life as a believer, it's probably got something to do with your prayer life. And if you're frustrated by problems in your prayer life, those problems have probably got something to do with the fact that you don't believe it's powerful in the way you should. If that's where you find yourself, the prayer I pray is with that Father in Mark 8. I believe, help my unbelief. So if unbelief is the root cause, I think a more tangible problem we have with prayer is distraction. That's so many things competing for our attention. I think that's always been true uh, for believers throughout time, but maybe it's especially true for us because we do have so many options for our attention. The age of the Internet and television has changed the way people think. It has changed the way we're able to engage in things that aren't flashing at us. Distraction's a real problem. Our minds wander. And I'm not going to pretend that there's a magic way to make that stop. There's not. But one thing you can do is find patterns and structures for your prayer. Let me make a couple of suggestions. First, about what to pray. What to pray. I think the most important thing you can do if you're struggling to keep focused in your prayer is use the Bible as your guide for what to pray. Use the prayers of Scripture. Pray them. Read them and pray them as you read them. The Psalms are made for that. That's the point of the Psalms being in there, is that they express this wide range of emotions in response to God. Some Better than others. Some better emotions, more joyful emotions than others. There's a whole range of responses there. Take the Psalms, read them, and pray them for yourself and for others. 
even more, use the prayers of the New Testament. Think about how Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer. That prayer is recorded there to teach you how to pray. The kinds of things that are supposed to be in your interaction with God. Jesus praises God for who he is. Hallowed be your name. He asks that God's kingdom will come. He prays for things as basic as bread. He prays for forgiveness and the ability to forgive others. He prays against temptation. These are kinds of things that should structure our prayers to God as well. And if you're struggling with distraction, sit down with that prayer and pray it line by line for your own context. Do the same thing with Paul's prayers. Almost every letter Paul wrote has a prayer in it where he's praying for the people that he's writing for. And and, and, in looking at those prayers, you see Paul's priorities. What did Paul want to see happen in these people's lives? It was always gospel-centered. And they're, they're extremely prayable. So that's, that's what to pray. I'd say the other thing is who you can pray for. If you're distracted, make yourself a list to keep track of who it is that you're praying for. Pray for people who are in your life that don't know Jesus. Pray for people in your family. Pray for people in this church. And the main reason is that we belong to a local church, as opposed to being a lone ranger, sort of floating free agent-style Christian is that we believe we need each other to pray and encourage each other as we seek to follow Jesus. It's one of the things we promise to do when we sign a membership covenant to become a formal member of the church. And one of the best ways to make this happen is to keep a list of people who are members here, to have it with your Bible, and to pray for them when you're praying for yourself. Pray one of these prayers of Paul for somebody else. It's one of the main points of our small groups. These are smaller groups of people that meet with each other during the week to pray specifically for each other. You can't pray for everybody, right? That's just the way it works. So to avoid praying for nobody, give yourself a list. So we struggle with unbelief. I think we struggle with distraction. I think one of the final problems that I've I've struggled with is just busyness. Our lives are full. We don't often think we can squeeze prayer in. And the solution here is not necessarily rearranging your life to slot it in, though that might be part of it. I think that could be dangerous for you because you could tend to treat prayer as just one more item on your to-do list. You know, you, one more thing that you can check off over breakfast. You don't, want it, you don't want to do that to prayer. The solution is to cultivate a lifestyle of prayer, a conversation with God about the things that you experience. Sometimes it could be just a word of confession. You're convicted in the moment about sin. You're convicted of lust. In the moment, confess that to God. You bump up against your own inability. Your, your, your children are not obeying and they're driving you crazy. Help. Just ask for help. Even a single word is, a, is, is, is an acceptable prayer to God. Prayer, in other words, is, is much more a condition of heart than it is an item on your to-do list. There's a book that was written uh, a couple years back on prayer by a guy named Paul Miller. I love the way he talks about this. Prayer is a condition of heart that rests in dependence on God with faith that he's going to deliver. Miller writes, Learning to pray doesn't offer us a less busy life. It offers us a less busy heart. In the midst of outer busyness, we can develop an inner quiet. By spending time with our Father in prayer, we integrate our lives with his, with what he's doing in us. Our lives become more coherent. They feel calmer, more ordered, even in the midst of confusion and pressure. Prayer, and the reason prayer is so central to what the kingdom looks like, is that it is an attitude of heart. It's a condition of living under God as one who depends on him. It's a lifestyle. And that's the call for us. As those who claim allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom, our call is a call to prayer 
to fight for lifestyles of prayer. We pray with me now. Lord, help us. We, we struggle to see things as we should. We struggle to believe that you honor prayer in the way that you've promised to, even here in this text. We pray for faith that could move mountains. We pray for faith that honors you and glorifies you as the one and only all-sufficient provider of everything that we need. That's what we want. That's what we struggle to realize in our lives. And so we ask for your blessing, for your enabling, for your spirit to pray for us even when we don't know how to pray for ourselves. We ask that your kingdom would come in our hearts and that it would look like lives of dependence on you. That's what we pray for in the name of Jesus. Amen.